1: And hello there, and welcome to the show. So glad you could join me today. If you're a first-time listener, welcome aboard. I'm going to do my best not to scare you off within the next five minutes or so. I guess we'll see, right? (laughs) I'm on my best behavior. And if you're a long-time listener, thank you, welcome. Come, let us revel in wrong think. Our program is brought to you every day, well, every day that I actually do it, that would be Monday through Friday, by Monticello College, also by Pure Light, LED light bulbs, pure-light.com. These incredible little bulbs that disinfect and deodorize and kill pathogens and do the work that a $1,000 air purification system would do for a whole lot less than 1000 bucks. Also, HSLAmmo.com. So I'm, I'm glad you could join us today. And, and, and it, I'm going to put this out there um, at the beginning of both hours of today's show just to, to let you know if you are in the vicinity of southern Utah, this coming weekend, specifically Saturday, April 10th, I'm going to be participating in a, a Liberty Conference taking place at the Red Lion Hotel in St. George, Utah. This is my old stomping ground, so I'm excited. I'm, I'm hopefully going to be uh, reuniting with some old friends and and uh, and listeners that have followed me throughout the years down there. I'm, I'm excited to, to get to speak. I think I've got a great topic to share. I hope it's something that uh, will, will help... Uh, add to people's understanding and sense of empowerment at a time when the world is, you know, kind of feels like it's tipping off its axis and going somewhere crazy. But if you want to register, there's a link that I'll include in the show notes where you can can get your tickets online. It is, I think it's $10 a person, $20 for families. But they, they've really got some great speakers. Among them, uh, Dr. Scott Bradley who is one of my favorite speakers out there for his command of uh, not just uh, constitutional government, but of history, and 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 I think he understands the, the very uh, clear connection of divine providence with that incredible gift of freedom. So, this is my first, won't be my last plug for this event. I'll be talking about it through the week, but if you happen to be in or around St. George, Utah, on uh, Saturday, April 10th, I will be among the speakers that day, and I would encourage you to come and find some time to, to spend with us. I think it'll be well worth your while. So, where to jump in today? I <clears throat> I've I've kept kind of unplugged from a lot of media over the weekend, and, and I do this deliberately, and some would say, well, it's because you're just afraid. You can't handle the truth. Hmm, maybe that's that maybe that's what it is. I don't know. All I know is I'm happier when I am not subjecting myself to a steady unending drumbeat of fear and anger and and political posturing you know on the part of those that uh, run the systems that want to run our lives but i'm seeing uh, a pretty strong drumbeat at least within the mainstream media for greater gun control and look I don't want to make it sound like I'm totally insensitive to the idea that, yeah, you know, people are being shot and killed. The fact of the matter is, they are, and they have been, ever since the invention of firearms. And before that, it was, you know, with knives and swords and sticks and bows and arrows. People have been killing each other and poking holes in one another for many millennia. But the way that these things are being reported today, you'll take a few little events that uh, can be blown out of proportion, portray it as, oh, it's an epidemic, it's going on everywhere, everybody's in danger. And and while it's certainly a tragedy for for those who are directly involved in it, the chances that uh, you're going to die in a mass shooting are, are so, so small that it, it would be, it would be ridiculous. I'm sorry, there's no other word for it. It would just simply be ridiculous to simply give up on your freedoms and give up on living life because there's a remote possibility somebody may twist off. You know, it, it is a possibility. The plausibility of it happening, well, that's, uh, that's another discussion. And it also raises the question, let's say that you are. Let's say that the odds just happen to not tip in your favor and you find yourself in kind of a, you know, localized version of the Hunger Games. Is that the time that you would want to, you know, take comfort in the fact that, well, at least as a law-abiding citizen, I don't have a gun, and therefore I'm not contributing to the problem? See, because I don't think that way. My thinking is more along the lines of, no, actually, that's the time when I would want to make as sure as possible that uh, I was in a position to deal with a deadly threat if it came to that, that means I would have to be armed and trained and have the will to use that firearm for personal protection. Now I understand that's not for everybody, and I'm not telling you that you know you, you should have a gun. If you don't have a gun, why you ain't fit to walk this earth. Some people, um, for whatever reason, you know it's a matter of personal conscience to say I would never want to harm or kill another human being for any reason. They would rather, they would rather die a noble death then inflict harm on another person. And I wish that I had that kind of faith, and I that I wish that I was that advanced and, and confident in, you know, this is the right thing to do. I'm not there yet. And the way I look at it is I have people who depend on me, I have family members who depend on me to be a provider and a protector for them, and I'm certainly not going to go looking for trouble, but I've spent, uh, you know, a lot of time over the last 20-plus years Getting trained and making sure that I know that I have options. You know the funny thing about it? The more training I've received, the less likely I feel it is that I will ever find myself in a gunfight. Because I have options. That's the beauty of having some training. So power-seeking politicians, you know, they're, they're going to continue to exploit tragedies like the, the guy who shot up the supermarket in Boulder, Colorado here a, a week or so ago. They just want to disarm as many of the law-abiding as possible, considering that a solution. By the way, I I know we're supposed to ascribe noble motives you know, to what people are doing, but when I see politicians saying, well, we've got to do this, we've got to stem this tide of gun violence, I think this really isn't about solving any problems. This is about creating a system in which no one is in a position to say no to whatever that politician or he or he or her, cro- him or her cronies, sorry, this whole gender thing's got me, Jay's cronies are ready to impose on the people around them. So before we step into that abyss and all the unpleasantness that would ensue if, uh, you know, there was another raid on Concord and Lexington like April 19th of 1775, let's consider some of the reasons why gun control can't solve America's violence problem. Now, as luck would have it, there's a marvelous article that was published over the weekend on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Mark Hauser is the author. And the title is, Four Reasons Gun Control Can't Solve America's Violence Problem. Here's the, the thumbnail sketch. These four underlying sociological problems are not guns but they are the key drivers of American violence. And you see that? He's not running away from the idea that, yeah, there's, there's violence out there, and, and solutions should be considered. Gun control is just the one that's really not going to accomplish what politicians claim it will. This will stop the violence. No, it won't. And here's why. Mark Hauser says, The gun control paradigm, the idea that the solution to American violence is law, more laws restricting guns, is unhelpful. Gun control doesn't work, he says. Indeed, any statistical connection between gun policy and violence is tenuous. But even if gun control was effective, it would still be flawed. Gun control burdens the free exercise of the constitutionally protected Second Amendment right to bear arms. So it's subject to compelling legal challenges and is flatly rejected by many Americans. In addition, the enforcement of stringent gun control invariably inflicts heavy burdens upon other civil liberties. And this is especially true in poorer communities and among marginalized populations. Mark Hauser says gun control's coexistence with the values of a free society is, at best, an uneasy one. But he says it's even less viable in the particular context of the United States. Consider the 400 million guns already in private circulation plus the totally irreversible and the ever-increasing ease of the self-manufacturing of firearms. No matter what laws are passed, widespread distribution and access to firearms are, and will remain, immutable facts of American life, especially for people who are willing to break laws. So in this context, he says, it's evident gun control cannot solve the problem of violence in this country. And then he goes on to offer four observations about American violence that suggest some promising alternative paradigms. So he's correctly identifying the problem, but he's also kind enough to offer us a few solutions along the way. Now, I've got to take a very quick break, so we'll do that. We'll come back and we'll dive into those uh, four reasons gun control can't solve America's violence problems. By the way, I have a link to this in the show notes. You can check them out for yourself. They're at thebryanhideshow.com. This will be the show notes for April 5th, 2021. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing with you an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. Mark Hauser is the author. The title is, Four Reasons Gun Control Can't Solve America's Violence Problem. You ready? Let's dive right in. Reason number one, suicide is the central problem of American gun violence. Now, he says, if you, if you visit the statistics page of the website for the anti-gun group Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence, you're immediately confronted with an enormous banner. 38,000 Americans die from gun violence every year, an average of 100 per day. However, that banner omits the fact that most of those deaths are suicides. A report in the Harvard Political Review noted that suicides accounted for nearly two-thirds of 2019's gun deaths. Now, if we meet gun control groups like Giffords on their own terms and accept the inclusive statistic of gun deaths as our metric, it's clear that gun violence ought to be addressed primarily through a mental health and suicide prevention paradigm. Can gun control be a part of suicide prevention strategy? Mark Hauser says it's hard to see how. Virtually any sort of firearm would suffice to take one's own life as well as other means. So there's no hypothetical in which popular gun control proposals like an assault weapons ban or magazine capacity restriction would make a difference concerning suicide. Moreover, gun control measures such as red flag laws that seek to deprive people of their guns on an ostensible mental health basis can actually deter struggling people from seeking the help they need. Right? Nobody wants to be the one getting red flagged and denied their rights even if they are suicidal. In this sense, he says a gun control approach to suicide prevention is not merely useless, it's actually counterproductive. Now, there's, enormous, there's an enormous amount of literature on suicide prevention, one of the best ways to help people who are struggling, oh, and the best ways, rather, to help people who are struggling with mental health issues. But discussions of different medications, cognitive therapies, wellness practices, and other measures are far beyond the scope of his article. But he says this is where our resources and efforts should be focused. Attempting to stop suicide by imposing gun control is like trying to stop drunk driving by banning cars. It's a completely implausible solution that elides the actual problem at hand. Number two, partner and familial violence are a huge part of the problem. See, the boogeyman of the gun control lobby is the proverbial mass shooter, some deranged antisocial individual who carries a military-style rifle into an ostensibly safe place like a school or grocery store and indiscriminately slaughters innocent people. He often has hateful or bigoted motivations for this act. And while such shootings do happen, they are incredibly rare and account for a vanishingly small portion proportion rather of the homicides that the US experiences in a given year per 2019 FBI data just 2.6% of homicides are carried out using a rifle and that means any kind of rifle not just so-called assault rifles in fact clubs and bare fists are used to kill more people annually than rifles and of the mass shootings that we do see many are gang related Concerning but not wholly aligned with the gun control narrative. Now he says, Consider these facts. Almost two thirds of child murder victims are killed by their own parents. Nearly half of all female murder victims are killed by their partners or ex partners. And while it's common knowledge that most victims of homicide are killed by someone they know, a surprisingly large proportion, perhaps as low as one in eight, but possibly as high as one in five, are killed by an actual family member. Conservatively, a given homicide victim is given about five, to- is about five times more likely to have been killed by a family member than killed with any sort of rifle. So the gun control movement's resources and efforts are overwhelmingly guided and driven by the mass shooter scenario hence their fixation on policies like assault weapon bans and magazine capacity restrictions. But even if such policies could be meaningfully enforced and implemented, and they can't, it's hard to imagine those sorts of policies having much bearing on partner and familial violence. The mass shooter fixation and gun fixation more broadly is utterly unable to curb violence of this kind. So he says instead, resources and efforts would be much better spent addressing partner and familial violence. Organizations that help women to escape dangerous relationships or address other aspects of domestic violence are poised to do much more good than organizations with broad and chaotic disarmament missions. All right, number three, the war on drugs can't be overlooked. The failure of the United States' 20th century experiment with alcohol prohibition has been well documented, but one unintended consequence of prohibition was a dramatic increase in violence. Without access to legal means of resolving conflicts, people involved in the illicit alcohol business, for which there was a massive consumer demand, handled their disputes and protected their interests with gunfire. While romanticized depictions of bootleggers and mobsters have been made for entertaining fictional fare, the true story hardly evokes nostalgia. Mark Hauser says the nation's homicide rate increased over 40% during Prohibition. By the way, I've seen the graphs charting the murder rate and there is a clear spike during those years of Prohibition. The violence was especially pronounced in large cities which experienced a homicide rate increase of nearly 80%. Even as more resources <clears throat> were <clears throat> devoted to law enforcement, the rate of serious crime soared and prisons overflowed. Had prohibition been allowed to continue, the already disastrous situation would likely have deteriorated even further. Fortunately, Americans realized the costs of prohibition were just too high. Repealing prohibition was the clear solution. With the ratification of the 21st Amendment, the nation's homicide rate dropped precipitously, falling well below pre-prohibition levels within just a few years. By the way, just as an aside, in looking at that, uh, that chart that, that showed the U.S. murder rate from like 1900 on up to, I think the, the time that I was looking at this was about 1995, 96, somewhere in there. It was astonishing to see that huge spike in the murder rate during Prohibition. You can clearly see it drop off afterwards, but here's the kicker. Then came World War II. And after World War II, there, were, there was access to so many surplus firearms and ammunition. And remember, this is at a time when you could just order them in the mail right to your home. This is for, before Gun Control Act of '68, And the murder rate was continuously low, low, low up until 1968. And with the enactment of the Gun Control Act of 68, you could see the murder rate start to rise. And it went up, and, and it, was, it was fairly high, not as bad as the Prohibition era levels, but measurably higher. It was clearly higher up until roughly the early 1990s, at which point it started to come down again. And by the way, it still remains relatively low compared to either you know the, the period of, of Prohibition or immediately following the Gun Control Act. Funny how the media doesn't report on things like this, but <clears throat> I'm telling you, when you see the chart and you see the graph, it's like, wow, that's, that's very clear. By the way, it was in the early to mid-90s that many states began passing shall-issue concealed carry laws and stopped prohibiting their, uh, their citizens and their residents from carrying a firearm for personal protection. Yes, the murder rate went down. Interesting. As Mark Hauser says, fortunately, Americans realized the costs of prohibition were too high. Repealing prohibition was the clear solution. With the ratification of the 21st uh, Amendment, the homicide rate dropped precipitously, dropping to well below pre-prohibition levels within just a few years. Now, we seem to have forgotten the lessons of this. But it's not too late, you know, to, to learn from it. These underlying sociological problems, like the drug war, contribute to family disintegration, poverty, and gang recruitment. They are the key drivers of American violence, not guns. Number four, guns don't beget violence, poverty and despair do. He says poverty and lack of opportunity are strongly associated with violence. And he says that's fairly obvious if you look at the demographic and geographic distributions of violence in America, which he previously explained. And there are links here. Academic research on the subject has come to the same conclusion. The links are in the article. So despite being gun control advocates, these researchers understand there are underlying sociological drivers of violence that transcend guns and warrant our attention. Now, to be sure, most people will readily accept that poverty and despair are associated with violence. That's not surprising. However, they may see the problem of poverty as impossibly vexing and intractable. Implementing stricter gun control laws may seem more feasible by comparison even if it doesn't get to the root of the problem. Part of the appeal of gun control is, you know, the simplicity of its narratives. So the bottom line here is gun control can't solve our problems, especially with the widespread adoption of 3D printing and other means of self-manufacture. He says gun control will increasingly be relegated to irrelevance. Gun control policies will burden only the upstanding citizens who, in good faith, try to abide by them and are nonetheless ensnared. You want to get serious about addressing violence in America? Mark Hauser says there are many more promising areas on which to focus. Check out the article in the show notes
0: at the Brian Hyde show.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, so I've heard this
1: phrase uttered a few times that uh, this one just, it rubs me the wrong way. We're talking nails on the chalkboard kind of irritation. And that is follow the science. I first heard this uh, in, in response to uh, various uh, hardcore environmentalists who were just sure, you know, we're, we're destroying the planet if we don't do something. In other words, if by do something, they mean if we don't give greater control over our lives and the economy, the means of production and all of the uh, energy sources possible to governments, then somehow the world is doomed. And it just seems a little bit convenient. And I mean, the the debates have been going on for a long time, but boy, that mantra, follow the science, follow the science, has has followed everywhere it takes place. And there's a great article from Spiked. This is from Gabrielle Bauer. You can't follow the science. And I want you to hear her, her reasoning for why she says this. And you have to understand, part of this is because too many politicians have spent, particularly the pandemic, where we've been hearing this a lot, dressing up value judgments as facts. The article says, science can explain what exists in the world, how things work, and what might be in the future. At least that's what uh, Yuval Noah Harari wrote in *Sapiens*. He gets it. By the way, I've got that book, and it's amazing. An 18th century Scottish philosopher, uh, as did 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume, who uh, once intuited that material reality cannot determine moral reality in his famous "No ought from is" principle. Now, I don't know, you know, if if uh, you know you're a hardcore um, science fan, or, you know, if, you, if you're somebody who's, you know, really wrapped around the axle on science, but that seems to be the mantra. People don't want to wear a mask. Why don't you follow the science? You know, this, it, it's, it's a club that's being used to, to beat people into submission. And this article points out a handful of other people have made similar points during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Dr. Vinay Prasad, Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at University of California in San Francisco, says science cannot make value judgments. Science does not determine policy. Policy is a human endeavor that combines science with values and priorities. And with regard to, for instance, with respect to the school closure debate, Prasad noted that science can help us quantify the increased risk or lack thereof of school reopening on SARS-CoV-2 spread and help quantify the educational losses from continued closure. But science can't tell you whether to open or close schools. Making the decision requires values, principles, a type or a vision rather of the type of society we want to be. End quote. Now, Erman Sozudagru, a teaching fellow at the, in philosophy of medicine at UCL, reached the same conclusion early on in the pandemic. He wrote back in March of 2020 While scientists are working around the clock to enhance our understanding of this disease, there is no conclusive data that can determine the best method to, con- to combat COVID-19. What drives our decisions is our value judgments. Now here, Gabrielle says, unfortunately, such insights haven't penetrated the zeitgeist. Instead, experts and media pundits alike have spent the last year exhorting us to follow the science as though science came with a roadmap and a moral compass. She says science gives us information, not instructions. It's kind of like a weather vane. You can look at a weather vane and deduce, "Mm, there's a stiff wind coming in from the northwest. But what the weather vane can't tell you is how to respond to the information. One person may decide it would be mad to step outside on such a windy day, while another may conclude it's the perfect day for a bracing walk. Same input, different responses. If you've decided to step into the wind, science can help you figure out how to stay warm. For example, science tells you that air-trapping materials like goose feathers do a superior job of conserving heat. Science tells you that wearing a hat can help your feet stay warm. But science cannot tell you whether to take that windy walk or sip hot cocoa on your sofa while watching the trees slap up against the window panes. To put it another way, science can tell us how to reach a goal, but it cannot tell us what goal to reach for. That job falls to ideology, to ethics, to values. So here's Harari again, this time in a February 2021 COVID retrospective in the Financial Times. When we come to decide on policy, we have to take into account many interests and values. And since there's no scientific way to determine which interests and values are more important, there is no scientific way to decide what we should do. In other words, follow the science doesn't hold up to logical scrutiny. Whether that science is robust or shaky, established or in flux, when people say, follow the science, what they really mean is, follow my values. I wish that was a bumper sticker. (laughs) Seriously, even though I don't like to speak in bumper sticker slogans, that's worth writing down. And here the author says, do we evaluate the success of medicine in terms of lives saved, for instance, or do we gauge our progress based on our ability to care for the dying? Do we devote more resources to the people who came before us, who gave us life, or to those who will inherit the planet from us? See, science can't give us answers to these questions. She says some people believe that human life has an inherent sanctity, that preserving life should supersede all other societal priorities. That's a defensible worldview. Other people believe that the sanctity of life resides in lived experience. If preserving every possible biological life requires us to give up the social, cultural, and spiritual connections that give meaning and texture to our lives, we have a right to question the trade-off. That's also a defensible worldview. So concealed beneath the the follow-the-science rhetoric, these divergent worldviews have shaped and polarized the discourse around COVID. Save lives, screams one side. Save living, screams the other. And science can no more readily settle this dispute than determine whether mountains are better than oceans. Now, she says, let us suppose that the Save Lives group in a country called Saftia, Safetya, sorry, well, well the uh, Safe Living group, uh, Save Living group lives in nearby Experia. COVID has spread with equal alacrity throughout these two countries. Their respective leaders have the same data at their disposal. What happens next? Well, the Saftians believe fully and passionately, that saving lives justifies pretty much any sacrifice. Life is a gift, and a civilized society does not place it on a weight scale. The thought that anyone might otherwise feel otherwise astonishes and offends them. It drives them to despair. The experienced believe just as fully and passionately that preserving life's richness and quality justifies some loss of life. They don't want people to die but they're prepared to accept a baseline of extra mortality to keep social, cultural, economic, and spiritual life afloat as society has historically done with traffic and flu deaths. And the thought that anyone might feel otherwise astonishes and offends them. It drives them to despair. These two groups could pore over the same COVID data, the same facts, figures, graphs, curves, spikes, waves, variants of concern, and vaccine clinical trial results and reach entirely different conclusions about how to best proceed. Their decisions flow from their values, not from the area under the curve or the shape of a protein spike. And Gabriel Bauer says this is why science alone cannot solve COVID. The real war is being waged on the ideological front, not the scientific one. It's a vision of is one vision of life against another. No matter how the science progresses, she says these competing visions will continue to pull the pandemic response strings. I thought that was really insightful, and I mean, look, maybe maybe you come down strongly on the side of, uh, hey, you know, we've we've got to uh, we've got to take this the scientific approach. And Dr. Fauci, not to drop uh, names or titles, but Dr. Fauci, um, you know, is is the foremost. Uh, person we should be turning to actually I, I use dr. fauci as an example here but I, I'm doing that primarily because I think that's a perfect example of an individual who I don't know maybe he's intending to do good but it's pretty clear to me that uh, dr. fauci has uh, started to believe his own press releases he believes that actually you know if I say it why you know my word makes it so he's he he would do well to study the story of King Canute and and learn what happened when King Canute uh, you know ordered the tide not to come in. Sometimes uh, sometimes science combined with political ambition or at least somebody's agenda is a very, very dangerous thing because the politicians will hide behind the experts and you know claim, well, see, we have to do what the experts are telling us. After all, they're experts. Do you know what they know? Well, then shut up and do what they say. But that doesn't change the fact that those experts, no matter how schooled they are, cannot decide for you or for me individually what is most important to us, what is actually in our best interest. You know who gets to decide that? Come on. You know the answer. Say it with me. Yeah, it's us. We we have to make those decisions. Why? Because we have the knowledge of what matters. We have the knowledge of what our priorities are. And no group of experts or no faraway experts sitting along the Potomac can make those uh, those kind of decisions for us with any degree of, of accuracy, not without imposing some massive top-down, you know, one-size-fits-all solution that invariably harms some people. It may help some. I mean, there's no doubt. Yeah, well, then what we try to do then is help the most people possible. Let the people decide. Give them the best information you can. And let them decide. Sweden did this, by the way. Maybe you should ask yourself, how did that work out for them? The answer is it, it actually worked out very well.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Alright, welcome back to the show. Once again, an invitation
1: to please check out the show notes at the BrianHydeshow.com. A couple of things I'm going to ask you to do when you go to the show notes. You'll notice on the show notes page you'll find a list of my sponsors. I would encourage you, please, find the option or find the opportunity rather of doing some business with them or at least reaching out to them and letting them know their message is reaching your ears via this program. That would be very, very helpful. Here's something else that would be helpful. Subscribe to the podcast. Yeah, it's it's very simple. You just, you know, you can hit the subscribe button and you will be notified every time I publish a new episode. And there's one other thing that I would ask you to consider, and that is if you find value in the articles that I'm sharing with you, the uh, insights that I'm offering, the the slant that I'm giving, and I'll admit, it's 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 my own slant. It's not... You know, it's, I, I'm not inventing the wheel here, but I think I've got a little bit different take than, than a lot of the different commentators out there. If it's something that resonates with you, that leaves you more sure of who you are and what you stand for, I would ask you, please consider becoming a, a regular supporter of this program. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month, $5 a month, $10 a month. That's entirely up to you. But I want you to know, the, the, the folks who, who pitch in like this and help are doing a tremendous favor to me because they make it possible for me to focus more fully upon what I'm doing here behind this microphone and uh, less on having to you know find side hustles to keep the wolves away from the door in the meantime. I know things are tough all over, but I greatly appreciate those who are patrons and sponsors of this show. And if you would consider becoming one, I'll thank you in advance for at least even considering it. All right, moving on. Let's talk about Inside the Church of Climate. I love this article. I found this from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this is, uh, this is something I've known for some time. And I think Ammon Bundy was one of the people who really helped point out to me, you know, environmentalism, and I mean the real hardcore environmentalism, it's become more of a religion than a political movement. I mean, they have their dogma, they proselytize, they are extremely jealous. In fact, they even call their heretics deniers. You know, and in a slightly less civilized time, I'm sure they'd be burning deniers at the stake. But uh, Robert Bradley Jr., writing for AIER.org, has this amazing article inside the Church of Climate. And it says At an environmental forum, Julian Simon once asked how many people here believe that the earth is increasingly polluted and that our natural resources are being exhausted. After a room full of hands shot up, Simon then asked, Is there any evidence that could dissuade you? Encountering silence, he followed up, Is there any evidence I could give you? Anything at all that would lead you to reconsider these assumptions? After more silence, Simon answered, Well, excuse me, I'm not dressed for church. Ha <laughs> ha Today's Church of Climate holds three resolute beliefs. The human influence on climate is pronounced and controlling. Number two, that influence cannot be positive or benign, only catastrophic. And number three, global governance can and must solve this problem. Now square this with the impressive, even stunning statistics of human betterment since the Industrial Revolution, especially in the last 75 years. One would think that these parishioners should be relieved, even happy, But theirs is an anti humanist philosophy. Not to be debated, but worshipped. It is a creed that sees nature as optimal, not to be violated by humankind. Deeply pessimistic, it is the deep ecology worldview. And here he goes into optimal nature which he says lurks behind the current climate debate. As Yale climate economist Robert Mendelssohn noted in the uh, greening of global warming back in 1999, there is an unstated myth in ecology that natural conditions must be optimal. That is, we must be at the top of the hill now. Back in the 1970s, a new ice age was feared from sulfur dioxide emissions from coal plants. That was the global cooling scare. By the way, I remember singing songs about it even in in grade school. Even offsetting forces were rejected by Paul Ehrlich, Ann Ehrlich, and John Holden. There can be scant consolation in the idea that a man-made warming trend might cancel out a natural cooling trend since the different factors produce the two trends uh, producing the two trends do so by influencing different parts of earth's complicated climatic uh, climatic uh, machinery rather it's most unlikely that the associated effects on circulation patterns would cancel each other End quote. now to members of the climate church the planet has been delivered in perfect working condition and cannot be exchanged for a new one An issue of World Watch magazine talked about uh, playing God with climate and scolded man for interfering with Earth's Earth's default condition. I mean, it's like they don't believe we're a part of nature. Then you have deep ecology. A radical wing of the modern environmental movement rejects an anthropocentric or human-centered view of the world in favor of an ecocentric view. In contrast to shallow ecology, concerned with pollution and resource depletion in the developed world, deep ecology defends what it calls the equal right of lower animals and plants to live and blossom. Deep ecology rejects what it sees as a master-slave relationship between human and non-human life. This is Arnie Ness in Radical Environmentalism, Philosophy and Tactics. Quote, Deep ecology stresses the interrelatedness of all life systems on Earth Demoting human centeredness. Man must respect nature as an end in itself, not treat it as a tool of man. The human ego and concern for family and other loved ones must be joined by a similar emotional attachment to animals, trees, plants, and the rest of the ecosphere. So to hurt the planet, then, is the same as inflicting bodily harm on oneself. By the way, the platform for the Foundation for Deep Ecology, a voice for wild nature, formulated by Arne Ness and George Sessions, condemns the current interaction of man and nature and calls for population decreases and lower living standards. Oh, I can see everybody lining up to get on board with that. In its words, the well-being and flourishing of human and non-human life on Earth have value in themselves, independent of the usefulness of the non-human world for human purposes. Secondly, richness and diversity of life forms contribute to the realization of these values and are also values in themselves. Third, humans have no right to reduce this richness and diversity except to satisfy vital needs. Fourth, present human interference with the non-human world is excessive, and the situation is rapidly worsening. Fifth, the flourishing of human life and cultures is compatible with a substantial decrease of the human population. The flourishing of non-human life requires such a decrease. So here's my question. Who gets to decide uh, which humans need to step off the planet, and how is that to be accomplished? I know that's a dark place to go, but... If they're going to be saying, well, this is what has to be done in the name of economic justice, I'm sorry, environmental justice, which, by the way, is the focus of uh, the, one of the big spending plans, the latest uh, multi-trillion dollar plan being bandied about Washington, D.C. Now, I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but it's creepy for starters. Number six, policies must therefore be changed. The These changes in policies affect basic economic, technological, and ideological structures and will be deeply different from the present. Oh, I can only imagine. The platform goes on to state that radical change is necessary, appreciating life quality rather than adhering to an increasingly higher standard of living. Now, the article goes on, To talk about the humanistic alternative, getting humans back in the picture, philosopher Alex Epstein reminds all that untamed nature is not only of benefit, but also perilous. He says, if good and evil are measured by the standard of human well-being and human progress, we must conclude that the fossil fuel industry is not a necessary evil to be restricted, but rather a superior good to be liberated. We don't need green energy, we need humanitarian energy. And then he reverses the climate narrative saying nature doesn't give us a stable, safe climate that we make dangerous. It gives us an ever-changing, dangerous climate that we need to make safe. And the driver behind sturdy buildings, affordable heating and air conditioning, drought relief, and everything else that keeps us safe from climate is cheap, plentiful, reliable energy overwhelmingly from fossil fuels. In The Future and Its Enemies, Virginia Postrel warns against the stasis mentality, the belief that a good future must be static, either the product of detailed technocratic blueprints or the return to an idealized, stable past. As opposed to dynamism, which embraces a world of constant creation, discovery, and competition. Here Robert Bradley Jr. says, Philosophy, not only economics and political economy, matters in the global warming-slash-climate-change debate. Start by checking your premises, he says, and those of your intellectual opponents. I don't know. I thought that was a pretty balanced way of looking at things. And, you know, certainly, you know, I believe we're, we're not supposed to be inflicting, you know, as much environmental damage as possible. Despite uh, my uh, recalcitrant uh, attitude towards, you know, the modern environmental movement, I'm not going to be burning tires on Earth Day. But I'm not about to surrender more of my autonomy Or uh, more control over my life to uh, well meaning government sponsored meddlers who somehow believe that most of us need to get off the planet to make it sustainable. Somehow that just seems, again,
0: creepy. Let's not go there. This is the Brian Hyde Show.